A thing happened to me that usually happens to men. You see, a man can meet two, three, or even four women and fall in love with all of them. And then by a process of uh, interesting elimination, he's able to decide which one he prefers. But a woman must decide purely on instinct, guesswork, if she wants to be considered nice. Oh, it's quite all right for her to try on a hundred hats before she picks one out. Very but... fine. Which chapeau do you want, madame? Both. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1925, and Dave Kerr joins us to discuss Lady Windermere's Fan. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We are here with Dave Kerr. Dave, tell us a little about yourself. What do you do and what provoked you to say yes to this weird, obscure Canadians podcast about this German <laughs> director who's been dead for 75 years? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a lot of questions there. <laughs> I am a longtime film journalist, wrote for daily newspapers for about 40 years, New York Times, New York Daily News, Chicago Tribune. And about eight years ago, I came to MoMA as a film curator. And one of the reasons I wanted to work here is because of MoMA's Film Archive, which is the oldest film archive in the world. It's the first museum that started collecting film as an art form. There are some other archives that started collecting film as a military uh, (laughs) studies vehicle. But MoMA was the first one to start buying movies as an art. And among the things they acquired in 1935 was this absolutely perfect print of Lady Windermere's fan, which is why we're here today. In those days, you could just buy prints from the studios, no contracts. I think this one cost $300 at the time. And for once, the studio really took the time and trouble to make a good print. Very often, they would foist off kind of second-rate used prints on the archives, but this one was just absolutely perfect. And it's been just sitting in that vault for the last 80 years and nice and cold. And there's been a photochemical restoration. We just did this digital restoration about two years ago which was one of the easiest things I've ever worked on because the print was perfect. Uh Just a question of some minor dust busting, you know, the usual color correction and stuff. And it's just magnificent. It's one of the best looking silent films I know of. That's unbelievably lucky. Yeah. Considering by some measures, what, 90% of (laughs) silent films are lost? 90% are lost. And uh, we had a similar experience with The Marriage Circle, which is another one that Iris Berry, who was the first director of the MoMA Film Department, bought directly from Warner Brothers. And then we have the two other more rare ones, which is Rosita from 1923, which was his first American film. And then Forbidden Paradise from 1924, which is his first American film with Bowen Negri, who'd been his star in Germany. And both of those came down in very patchy, seriously compromised, pretty horrible prints. And that took a lot of work to put those two back together. Mm. But ultimately worth it. I think Rosita always had a very bad reputation just because people had not seen it. And Mary Pickford, for some reason, didn't like it. Yeah, she turned on the movie at some point. She turned on it around 1930. You know, I've looked it all up in the fan magazines and stuff. <laughs> the movie was quite successful in its day, got great reviews, apparently it was a hit, although, you know, box office figures for the 20s are not available, but it seems to have been a pretty substantial success. By 1930, she's referring to it as a disaster, huh. this horrible film, and she tried to suppress it. She did not preserve it. She saved one reel. But she does a little comedy bit that she seemed to like. Mm -hmm. And then she let the rest of it turn to dust. 
The only known print turned up in the Russian archives. It was a bootleg, I'm sure, from the Soviet era because Mary Pickford was just as popular in the Soviet Union as she was anywhere else. Probably a German print that they duped a bunch of times, put Russian intertitles over that have no relation to the actual English intertitles, <laughs> and just in horrible shape in general. And there was nothing we could do with it for years and years. And the museum acquired it sometime in the 70s. And it's just been sitting there, you know, waiting for digital technology to come along. And finally, we were able to, you know, remove a lot of the more serious damage, recreate the intertitles, about 90% accuracy, not 100%. And restored the original color tinting, the color sequence, mm -hmm. and turned out to be a pretty decent movie, you know, much to everyone's delight and surprise. This brings up a couple of questions I have about interpretation of things like color tinting. Mm -hmm. An example of a restoration being very upfront about this is the Carmen restoration. It explicitly said that the color tinting has been, we have inferred it. Right. We don't know because all that was left was a monochrome version. Mm -hmm. For things like color tinting, because in Rosita, you have that incredible nighttime sequence, right? With right. the fireworks. Mm -hmm. That I don't know if it's hand painted or how they did that, but did the Russian print contain that? Russian print was black and white. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we were able to find lab reports of the original color tinting. Mm. So we know in general what the tints were supposed to be. And we knew that there was a color sequence there, but I'm afraid that we made up. I mean, there was no accurate data as to what that would look like, but it's a close imitation of the hand color sequences in Foolish Wives, for example, which we do have and have pretty good data about. Mm. So it doesn't show you any colors that were not available at that point. And we don't think it's overly sophisticated. We could have done a more tighter job of colorization, obviously, if we didn't want that. We wanted it to look like those original hand stenciled colors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately it's subjective. I mean, you can't say that this is 100% accurate, but it's our very best guess. Whenever we do something like that, we put a little MoMA logo down in the lower right corner to let people know that this isn't an original frame. This is something we've either recreated or tricked up in some way. Ah, that's fascinating. But of course, we keep all the complete scans of the original material as a reference. So if somebody wants to do it again someday, they can. Also, a great thing about digital is that it's reversible easily. Exactly. And you make a mistake, you can fix it. You always have the original scans you did. You have the original scans. Of course, we keep the original nitrate, too. Mm -hmm. And so which elements of the restoration are best done photochemically in this case for Rosita, which I know is in horrible shape? What was done photochemically and then what can only be done digitally? Rosita, I think really nothing photochemically. Mm. We scanned the whole thing, which was very difficult. The nitrate was very choppy, missing sprocket holes. There are two or three labs that specialize in challenging scanning. And this one was done by image protectors in Los Angeles. It's just hard to get it you know, through the scanner. And of course, you have to make sure you're getting all the data. And these things are, it's not a push button operation, as you know. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of intense supervision, trial and error. It's making sure you've got all the values of the photography, you know, accurately or accurate as we can registered digitally. My only experience in restoration personally is restoring film photos digitally. Mm -hmm. And so I've never had the issue of, and this is a common thing with older film prints, is that it physically will not go through. Oh, yeah. It has to be like babysat, mm -hmm. frame by frame often. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I mean, the Forbidden Paradise was an even worse condition. It was two incomplete prints from the Czech archive, mm. both running about 40 minutes, about four reels. And again, it was assumed that there was nothing we could do with these. They were just in such horrible condition and the whole film wasn't there. So let's not bother. But then we decided to take a look at both prints, which no one had done, <laughs> it seems. And when we saw both of them, we realized we had about 95% of the film. So we were able to recreate it following the original screenplays. 
again, had to fake one or two missing scenes using intertitles. Mm. But by and large, yeah, this was a very important Lubitsch that's kind of been brought back from the dead. This was a major film that just you could not see in any kind of decent edition. And it's a testament to the skills of the restoration team and also the endless possibilities of digital restoration that I watch Forbidden Paradise and I watch Lady Windermere's fan. And I mean, there's the tells, the details around the fringes mm-hmm. that Lady Windermere's fan comes from a better source. But the difference is not night and day at all. Yeah. I mean, it's quite remarkable when you look at the original material mm-hmm. and you can really squeeze a lot of information out of a print. Oh, yeah. It's just surprising. You know, when somebody knows what they're doing with a scanner, you can get a lot of detail even out of a bad print. Our tech guys are just really good. You should meet Peter Williamson, our chief tech guy is here if you have a chance. And he's one of the pioneers in this field. And, you know, a guy who learned photochemical starting in like 1970 and then relearned everything to go into digital. Yeah, really remarkable guy. Knows that stuff. Oh, that's fantastic. My favorite film experience ever to this day. Still, I don't think it'll ever be topped unless something amazing happens is seeing Napoleon (laughs) at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival in 2012. Oh, yeah. And the difference between that and the, a couple of years later, Brownlow released a digital version of Restoration, but the version I saw was entirely photochemical. Mm-hmm. And it was an incredible case study in things that we kind of take for granted in the digital world, like half the frame at certain points was propped off because of a soundtrack. Someone had laid over right. certain reels at certain points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Little things like that, that I think it's worth noting how limited the photochemical restoration process is based on mm-hmm. most of us see these digitally now. Oh, yeah. No, you can take it pretty far. We've been messing with a Chaplin short called The Adventurer, which has been restored a million times by a million different people. But Peter came across a 28 millimeter print, which was one of the many home movie versions that were kicking around. Wow. And it seems to have been made off of a very early negative. And combining that with a sound reissue we had from 1931, which was clearly made from a first negative, but had an added soundtrack down the side, which chops off the left side of the frame. Yeah. So we were able to patch in that missing sections from the 28 millimeter print onto the 35. And this combined with other elements from shot to shot, you know, this corner is in much better focus on this shot. Let's use that. It's a jigsaw puzzle. It's really amazing what you can pull together. Often you're combining multiple sources. You're combining three, four sources in one frame. Yeah. And it just looks incredible. So many of these restorations often look better than most audiences would have seen them at the time even. Kind of the ethic we have is try to create the look of a release print from the year it came out. There's always that temptation to go a little further. I particularly see this in the studio films. Mm-hmm. I remember like seeing a very nice restoration of an Orson Welles film. And I'll leave out the names of the people who did it just because. <laughs> and the guy's saying to me, yeah, you can see stuff in this that even Orson Welles couldn't see. And I say, but that's what I don't want to see. Mm-hmm. I want to see what Orson Welles put there. I don't want to see the, the intent, the nail heads on the set. But you can squeeze that stuff out if you want to. My closest personal experience with this is with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Mm. I won't name names, but it's with Travada. The current 4K restoration of it and a couple of now friends of mine we met because our bootleg illegal restorations attempts with this film. Mm. They actually scanned a print. They scanned an actual, it was an IP tech print and it was beautiful. But the thing they said was, look at the skies. In the Travada version, all the skies are blue. You can see every cloud that's so dense because they pulled so much detail out of that negative versus the release prints, sky is completely blown out. And Mm -hmm. Leone would have known that and composed for it. Yeah. It gets at that, the best possible version in big air quotes, scare quotes, best right. versus the one that the artist actually intended. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously it's always going to be subjective, but I think you should fix a goal, you know, what you want. Yeah. 
It's a fascinating question, this whole idea of the interpretation, because so many of these films, too, don't really have a canonical shape. Actually, The Merry Widow is a great example where the version that we see now, I think, is much closer to Lubitsch's intent than what was released in 34, because the version that was apparently released in 34 was highly censored. Yeah, depending on the territory. In the U.S., at least, I think. Yeah. At that point, it still had been like individual cities had their own censor boards. Mm -hmm. That was one of the good things about the MPAA is that they centralized all of that censorship. Yeah. So you'd see a different film in Chicago than you'd see in Boston or in New York. Mm -hmm. And so the question of like what people saw versus I could record a whole podcast about the one car Y question (laughs) Mm -hmm. of that, which I have a very strong feeling. One question I have is, for example, Rosita, you mentioned most of the title cards had to be sourced elsewhere. Right. Whereabouts was that source and how does one go out tracking down that? Oh boy. Yeah, that one was particularly challenging. We never found an original continuity script, which is what you want, you know, that's made after the shoot, just laying out shot by shot what's in the film, mm-hmm. all the title cards, everything just as it existed in the final print. That's what you really want to find. We found nothing like that. We had a very early draft that had actually different names for the characters that had the sequences set in different cities. Oh my gosh. Clearly a lot more work went into that. Yeah. And some of it interesting, you could see where Lubitsch reassigned one entire character to an actress that he liked better. You know, just took all this guy's business and gave it to somebody else. And it's a great choice. (laughs) But we were able to find some of the original text quoted in reviews here and there. There's a big plot point of Fortune that hangs on a song that she sings, a satirical song attacking the King of Spain. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had like two lines from that and nothing else. So oh, wow. it was like, you had to write a song. So I wrote <laughs> the lyrics. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> you did a great job. I would never have guessed. <laughs> Glad you say that. Yeah. Stepping into Ernst Lubitsch's shoes is something that uh, makes me a little nervous, but uh, I guess we got away with it. And again, we identify it as, you know, a MoMA creation, uh-huh. but otherwise a big plot point does not register in the film at all. So sometimes you got to make these overstepping decisions and yeah, I will defend that. I think it's very defensible. You're the, um, you're whoever the writer was for Millie Vanelli, but for Lubitsch now. <laughs> <laughs> Out of curiosity, and this might be something that's unknown, but is the character he gave all the business to the Irene Rich character, the queen? No, no, no. The French actress who plays Pickford's mother, the credits I didn't bring, she's wonderful. She's in a bunch of 20s comedies. Mm -hmm. But in the original screenplay, the gags are all assigned to the actor playing Pickford's father. And clearly they got on the set and Matilda just blew everybody away because she's just much funnier. So he gave all of that business that's in the script to her. I know that for some of the German films, censorship notes were used to Mm. recreate the intertitles. Yeah, yeah. That's another great source, of course. Mm -hmm. Various state censorship boards. You never know what you're going to get. The New York board would occasionally keep complete records of every intertitle in the movie or nothing. You have to send in a fee. You wait six months and either get an empty envelope back or you get some useful information. In the case of Rosita, we got nothing. <laughs> Absolutely zero. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. We talked about the tinting of Rosita. Silent film tinting is one of my, I love it. I've been waiting my whole career to rip that off for one of my own movies. Yeah. But in Lady Windermere's fan, one thing I noticed was that the tinting in that film is some of the most, I would say, sensical and coherent of the tinting of any of the Lubitsch films from that era. It has a very, very clear rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. You have magenta for the Windermere's. You have yellow for all the outdoor stuff. Mm -hmm. You got the nice dark blue for the night scenes in the garden. Oh, yes. And then Mrs. Erlene's resonance is neutral. Kind of a peachy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a peachy color. Was that something that existed in any of the prints you saw or was that taken from notes? Those are from notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, that's interesting. The tints themselves based on samples from the era. Because mm-hmm. the print we have isn't black and white. In this case, there's enough documentation to be like 99% certain this is correct. And were those tints accomplished photochemically or entirely digitally when you did them? In this case, entirely digitally. When we do make prints, which still happens once in a while, mm-hmm. there's a lab in Amsterdam. Oh, wow. That does pretty good color tinting. And there's a very mysterious guy in Prague who <laughs> has some mysterious process he will not share with anyone that's much, much cheaper. And he will tint your film for you, but we don't use that guy. <laughs> uh, too underground. We've talked a lot about the work of restoring these, although before I move on, is there any other element of the restoration process? Because I want to talk about releasing in a second, but the elements of the restoration process, is there anything that you feel that we haven't shed light on quite yet? The other component is getting scores. And in the case of Rosita and Lady Windermere and Forbidden Paradise, we had the original scores from the period. Mm. So we had a film scholar, musical scholar, who recreated the original orchestrations. And again, that is as close to accurate as we can be. There were services that issued cue sheets for films, like a list of more or less public domain, classical compositions, popular folk song, that sort of thing, suggesting what you should play when. Mm. And occasionally different filmmakers would get more involved in these creations. And it's the opinion of our musicologists is that Lubitsch, who had a very advanced musical knowledge, was very much involved in selecting the scores. Particularly Rosita, there's lots of very esoteric references to medieval chants and stuff that just would not have appeared on the standard Kyushi. Oh, wow. Say you have a film where the score is, we know nothing about the score, right? Kyushis have been lost. Everything is gone. What's the process? I guess everyone has a different process, but if any restorations like that have landed on your doorstep, what process do you undertake when that happens? Well, we got one right now. Stella Dallas, which is a great Henry King film from 1925. Just brilliant, brilliant melodrama. You've probably seen the remake with Barbara Stanwyck from the 30s. Mm. But this is even better. I mean, really just a terrific film. No score existed. We commissioned a British musician, a guy named Stephen Horn, who had been touring with a piano accompaniment for Stella Dallas. So we got him to write an orchestral score, which we were able to finance and premiered at the Venice Film Festival in September. 13-piece orchestra really just beautiful, beautiful evening. And we've recorded that and we hope to get that out as a disc or something, Mm. whatever still remains by the time (laughs) we can produce it. But again, just try to stay in the spirit of the piece. And there's nothing in Stephen's work that seems anachronistic that you would watch and say this wouldn't happen in 1925. I do not like the rock, pseudo-jazz, contemporary scores that do get stuck on these things occasionally. What's your feeling about something like the Giorgio Moroder Metropolis? That sort of thing where it's almost like a new work. It is, you know, I mean, that was such a manipulation of the material. It doesn't ultimately have much to do with Fritz Lang. In that case, it was by selling the rights to Marauder that the Munich Film Archive was able to finance their restoration. Mm. So that was a necessary compromise, I think. <laughs> they got the work done thanks to Marauder. Mm-hmm. And of course, his version is now just a novelty. It's interesting too, like um, my experience of so many of these films, this is the refrain I return to in a lot of these episodes is I often find myself doing a lot of work mentally to decouple mm. my experience with the score, yeah. with the film itself. Like I think part of why I have a special place in my heart for student prints is because I think the Carl Davis score is just unspeakably gorgeous. Uh-huh. And it's only like my fourth favorite of his scores and just his romantic sweeping mm-hmm. scope of that thing I think pairs so well with the film so yeah. when I appraise that movie I almost have to deal with two separate works versus The Doll which I don't know if you've seen the restoration of that it's the one that Masters of Cinema has on their box set mm-hmm. beautiful restoration I love that film but the score is <laughs> not 
good. Yeah. <laughs> the Germans have a certain weakness for that. I don't know why they keep doing it. <laughs> There's a nice restoration of variety out mm. that has just the worst rock score imaginable. Oh, yeah. it just You can't watch it. I mean, just turn it off. This experience going through all these films has been very hit or miss. Just a couple of films before, The Oyster Princess has a very strong accompaniment. Mm-hmm. But they're all very interpretational. Right. Done decades later. Yeah. It's very expensive, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. It's easier to get someone to just improv on the pump organ for 80 minutes. Yep. Well, we've certainly done that. And that can be nice, too. It can. That was a lot of people's experience of these films was a theater organ. Mm-hmm. Small group. I want to ask about releasing these. You mentioned that the Rosita version that MoMA has restored had at some point been leaked <laughs> or someone had taken a print from the archive or something. Oh. There was some scandal about that. Oh, that was before it was restored. Yeah. Sometime back in the 70s or 80s, it looks like somebody bribed one of the guards at the old storage (laughs) facility, a film collector, got it out, duped it, and took it back. But that was the old Soviet version. Mm. So that's the version that's on like archive.org and places like that. Mm -hmm. It's probably all over YouTube. Oh, yeah. So that was his apparently surreptitious dupe of our material because there's no other explanation for how he got his hands on it. Oh, wow. Collectors are a pretty weird bunch and quite intense. I know a few. (laughs) (laughs) I'm mildly a lurker on certain Star Wars fan community forums Uh that are focused on cobbling together the best release prints. Oh, yeah. The shenanigans that go on are phenomenal. (laughs) I know. As far as the availability of these four films as of now, which is December 2022, what's the status of these four films and how does that happen? How do you go from, okay, we finished a restoration to Joe on the street, Devin can buy it? Yeah, it's not easy. It would have been easier 20 years ago, but the market is really pretty much dried up. It's a very small group of hardcore collectors who are interested in these things. And if we sold two or 3,000 units of something like Rosita, I would be happily surprised. Hmm. So economically, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep doing this, but you kind of want to do it because you want a thing at the end of the day. I'm still hoping to place a box set of our four Lubitches with one of the DVD companies. And everyone's kind of interested, but nobody really wants to pull the trigger because it's not a moneymaker. No. I think it'll happen sooner or later. We started streaming some of them on the MoMA website, which is something that I think we're going to have to develop a lot more intensely in years Mm -hmm. to come since physical attendance is falling off significantly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is that a COVID thing? Everyone I speak to says the same thing. The audience for repertory cinema is fallen off as precipitously as any other form of cinema mm. right now. So we're down about two thirds. Oh, wow. And I hear that from pretty much everybody in this world. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, mm. but Mom was lucky that we do have our own archive so we can supply ourselves. We can keep up a steady stream of releases. What's nice is that things are now coming into the public domain. So next year, 1927 is in the public domain, which means didn't print major films like Seventh Heaven, which we have rolling into early sound more and more. I mean, that stuff is going to be distributed by the archives because the studios have no longer a financial interest in it. And this could be good in the sense that we'll get more stuff out and it could be bad in the sense that we don't have much money. <laughs> exactly. It's a real double sword, the question of the public domain. Mm-hmm. There have been Kickstarters for public domain films for things, and those have a checkered track record. Yeah, the jazz singer will be in public domain in January. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one movie that Warner Brothers actually cares about. Will they fight to hold on to it? Will they come up with some scheme to renew the copyright? I just can't believe they're just going to let it go Mm -hmm. because that film's so crucial to their corporate identity. Yeah, we'll see. 
What year does Mickey go? <laughs> That's the year that I hold out no hope for. Mickey, I think is 28, but uh, it's a special case because he's also a trademark. He is, yeah. So he doesn't go out of copyright. He's always protected as a trademark of the Disney Corporation. The films are out of copyright, but he as a character, I think, is permanent. I'm no big fan of the Disney Corporation, but they did get a bad rap on that last copyright renewal. It's like it was the Mickey Mouse Copyright Act to pass entirely to protect the Mickey Mouse <laughs> franchise, which is not true. I mean, I work at the Committee of the Library of Congress. I see a lot of this stuff going on. Mm-hmm. It was the music people. Ah. It was really the music industry that drove that last big reorganization. Is there something that happened in that decade of music that they really wanted to hold on to, I wonder? Uh, I think the strengthening protection in other areas. Mm. And they actually let go of some of their 20s copyrights, the music people did. And one day I'll be able to use Robert Johnson in movies without repercussions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As a student prince partisan, the year 1927 falling into the bog domain is endlessly exciting to me Mm. because that means there's hope. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm not sure where the print is. Eastman House, have you looked into that? No, I haven't, no. Who actually owns that print? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, find the archive, who's got it, and they can do whatever they want to as of January 1st. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a mad scramble everyone will want to. (laughs) Be nice to think so. It's a movie that, I guess, the Venn diagram of Carl Davis diehards and (laughs) Ernst Lubitsch diehards is probably a very small overlap. (laughs) At this point, this is probably where I would move on to talking about Lady Windermere's fans specifically, but is there any other elements to this restoration process that you would love to talk about? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's the most satisfying thing I do. You know, it really is such a pleasure to know that you've put these things back in the world. Mm -hmm. Just great work. I'm so glad I'm able to do it. Really lucky, really privileged that way. As a uh, very unbrand nerd, you know, when you meet someone really like a hero of yours, mm-hmm. I get that with film restorationists more than anyone else, mm-hmm. just because what kind of got me into cinema, the first thing was videophilia. I was 14 and building our first DVD system. Mm-hmm. And I just got really into video quality on DVDs and that got me into film restoration and mores of that. So I kind of came at filmmaking via going through that conduit first. Uh-huh. So it holds a special place in my heart. Yeah, great. As a crusty old cinematographer. <laughs> But yes, Lady Windermere's fan, we're about halfway through Lubitsch's silent period, his American silent period, mm-hmm. towards the end of it. This film, so full disclosure listeners, this week was my first time watching this film. So I'm coming at this from a bit of an unusual viewpoint because the silent period was probably the period of Lubitsch's career, the American silent period that I'm least familiar with. Mm. I've seen quite a few more Berlin films than the American ones. And yeah, this film, predictably, the recommendations were, I think, on point. <laughs> I massively enjoyed it. Yeah. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. What draws you to Lady Windermere's fan in particular? Well, I mean, to me, it's one of his supreme masterpieces in one of the great silent films, period. I think it's just such a oh, virtuoso piece of rhetoric and just a really profound piece of human psychology at the same time. I don't know any director who concentrates so much intellectual power in one shot. You know, the amount of information that he's able to convey with the most minimal means, uh, just endlessly fascinates me how quickly he's able to set up a situation how quickly he's able to go to the heart of a character you know always find that kind of objective correlative you know, the way he uses the fan in lady windermere how its meaning changes you know three mm-hmm. times over the course of the film and i'm just lost in admiration for his intelligence his sense of efficiency his sense of structure and how much he respects his audience he gives us enough to know what we need to know and he lets us fill in the rest which I guess is the essence of the Lubitsch touch, quote unquote. But it's not just slamming doors and letting you think what's going on behind the door. It's 
that simple gesture that contains so much of the character that reflects so much of the dramatic situation that just crystallizes you know, all the issues of the film instantly. There's a great example right at the beginning of Lady Windermere, which opens with her playing with this little set of place cards. She's arranging her dinner party for that evening. Mm-hmm. And in that act, you see her being kind of childish, like a little girl playing with her dolls, you know, arranging things around because she's a little immature. She has the one card with the name of the guy who's been flirting with her on it. And she just looks at it. She's very ambiguous. She thinks about putting it next to her. And then she doesn't. She moves it away. And you realize that 90 seconds have gone by and you are totally plunged into the heart of this drama. Who this woman is, who she's married to, who her potential lover is, just the kind of conflict she's feeling. This respectable bourgeois home that she's dropped down into. And will she risk it for this little flirtation? And the film has barely started. I don't know any living director who could do that, who can get that much information across that effectively, that subtly, that quickly. And that's genius to me. There's one shot in this where Anya gave me a funny look during our watching of it because I was laughing so hard. And it was just this little detail, similar an object where it's towards the climax. You know, Lord Windermere is about to discover that his wife is not at home, not in bed, sick. Mm -hmm. She's actually at Darlington's. And so you set the scene with a wide shot. Right. And you see him go up the staircase and you cut to inside the room. And here's how you establish that Erling has followed him and stopped him. Cut to the inside of the room. You see a door open and close. And that's all you need to know about yeah. three plot beats. Right. I was just cackling. It's spectacular, right? Yeah. The film is full of that. I mean, the hedge mm-hmm. scene blew me away. With At first, the hedges are used to hide the action of Lady Windermere along with Darlington, right? Where mm-hmm. based on who's off screen, who's dipped their heads below the hedges, right. you can tell the story of the dynamics between these two. Mm-hmm. And then it's inverted when you see the fateful hedge that blocks out Lord Augustus. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. The symmetry between that and the racetrack scene. Mm-hmm. The garden is a reflection of the racetrack. It's the opposite. Ah. The racetrack is about seeing and being seen. Everyone looking at all those field glasses, the framing through various voyeuristic signals. Mm-hmm. And everyone has misinterpreted what they've seen. They've come away with a completely false impression of who Mrs. Erlen is, uh, what's going on. And then the garden scene, the birthday party, is all about hiding. Concealment, confusion, darkness, the typical Shakespearean garden. We go in there and then magical things happen to reconfigure everyone's relationships. But in this case, everything comes out wrong. No one understands what's going on. And just the way he uses the framing in that part of the film to block off scenes to hide half the frame, to cut characters out, is the exact opposite of what he's doing in the racetrack scene, which is we're all on the same level, we're all seeing everything that's happening, you know, we're understanding nothing. The racetrack scene, too, is fascinating for me because it's the only scene in, I think, from any of the American silence that I've seen, or Lewis's, where the first three or four shots of it, this is me thinking out loud at the time, but have we cut to a documentary? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so shocking seeing, I think it was shot in Toronto. Yeah, uh, location yeah, yeah. as footage. a Canadian, you'd be very proud of that. Yeah, we got our one Lubitsch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, apparently he needed to go to Toronto in order to get the horses going in the right direction on the mm-hmm. racetrack. I had no idea way, about yeah. this. Yeah. So you couldn't do that at Santa Ana <laughs> because they were running the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So everybody flew to Toronto to get the horses going in the right direction around the racetrack. I'd be so curious to know about the logistics behind it because we were thinking at the time when watching it, oh, wow, so this is just B-rolled and as usual, Hollywood, you're going <laughs> to cut to people in front of a rear projection. Mm-hmm. But no, you have Irene Rich shot on location. And yeah, a substantial extras. amount is there. And clearly when they go to the stalls, it's back in the studio. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of location in there. As far back as Wildcat, you had production designers urging Lubitsch to not shoot anything on location mm-hmm. because it would ruin the illusion, the kind of aesthetic he'd created. 
So to see him at that late of a juncture shooting on location is, uh, is quite something. Yeah. Yeah. So many things about the scene, like you have the point of view play in that scene. It's been a little trend I've been noticing of Lubitsch films and more and more he's playing with basically point of view shots. Mm-hmm. Like in Marriage Circle, you have one of my favorite shots in the movie is this kind of unexpected high angle shot mm-hmm. of one character looking down at a car. Right. Another character. And that scene feels like him having, I mean, he's clearly confident decades earlier, but it's almost like he had found a way to explode that mm-hmm. and make it into this huge set piece. Yeah. And it's all exaggerated. You have two characters sitting next to each other and you have POV of one cut to the second character, POV of the other, and the shots are clearly 20 feet apart. Yeah. You have the two shots of Irene Rich. I've been going back and forth between character names and actor names and I shouldn't, but I really like her as an actress. Oh, she's great. He's just playing with space and everything. It's lovely. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's what he does. I'm being too effusive now, but, and then you have that beautiful scene where Lord Augustus pursuing Lady Ireland. Mm-hmm. And the frame narrowing. The frame pursues him. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. The big exit sign, like she's being pushed out of the garden by punishment, right? Mm-hmm. Exit. God is telling her to get out. <laughs> Ironically, of course. And that's just when she catches up with her dream boat, her man. Exactly. And that gesture feels almost like a Berlin era gesture for him. Back when he was playing with frame sizes every two seconds. Mm-hmm. Kind of remind me of the Wildcat again. Yeah. Where every shot has a different aspect ratio. Yeah. As he matures as a filmmaker, he renounces a lot of the flashiness. He does. Yeah. By the end, you can watch a Lubitsch film and not even be aware of the camera placement. You know, it's so smooth. And once you are aware of it, you realize how absolutely precise it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's the only place that camera could be at that moment. By the time you get to your 40s, he's just a picture of discipline. Next to Hitchcock, Hawks maybe the greatest formal control of anybody. Mm-hmm. Just really understood the medium. One thing I'd be curious to hear your perspective on is you look back at Lubitsch's films and he has the classic case, right? An artist where you almost take his innovations for granted because they're such mm-hmm. a part of that fabric. I always bring up Errol Morris in this where the vlogging is that yeah. it's Errol Morris, for example. And that's always the nearest comparison in hand for me. But with Lubitsch, it seems like his innovations, at least during this period, start to become so enmeshed with the mainstream cinematic language. Mm-hmm. It can be easy to take them for granted. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the way that his language assisted, but played into the development of that classical continuity that we're all familiar with. He's an interesting case in that he really doesn't find his mature style until he's been working for five or six years. Mm -hmm. You know, clearly influenced by Griffith, as everybody was at that point, Mm -hmm. and apparently quite influenced by DeMille when he came to New York on a short visit and saw DeMille's male and female. Mm. and thought it was great. And then he saw Maurice Stiller's Eroticon back in Germany and was deeply influenced by these two films. And really, he changes his entire style after that. You know, Rosita is the last of the historical epics, but it's already kind of drifting toward this other thing, which is pretty complete transformation with Marriage Circle. That's the first one that really becomes like hardcore. That stuck out for me as, oh, this is the Lubitsch. This is the Lubitsch that's finding his trademark. Finally, he's there. And that was the first film he made after seeing A Woman of Paris, too, right? Yes, Woman of Paris, of course, the third big influence on him and casting Anjou as a result. Yeah, we fell in love with him. <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah. Really great. Continued to be so for many years. Depending who I'm talking to, Woman of Paris has a kind of a primary role or less of one. Scott Eamon in his book actually says uh, it's probably more DeMille. So there's an interesting controversy. I somehow think so, too. Mm. You know, there's something about the way he films interiors. You know, right away he has this kind of the doors and floors, which is Lubitsch. That's instant in the German films. Mm-hmm. Those elaborate parquet floors with the patterns, the huge doors opening and closing. You know, this is something that's just part of his imagination, almost from the first shorts. You think those big checkerboard floors appear almost instantly. 
yeah. in his films. And there's something about that geometry that really seems to suit him. He likes elegance. He likes angles. He likes smoothness. But he's more interested, I think, in that realm of unknowability and ambiguity in that sense that maybe we shouldn't know everything, you know, that human knowledge is by definition limited and maybe that's the way it should be. The ultimate point of view is the one that makes you a good person. And maybe you don't know that your husband is trying to cheat on you. That is an interesting element of this film where, I mean, we're talking about it in formal terms, but even just in terms of the plot of this film, right? Where Mm -hmm. the dramatic irony is not resolved, which I found very interesting Mm -hmm. because I'm so used to it. It's virtually universal in a film like this. And I think we can also attribute this to the Oscar Wilde source material. It's surprisingly superficial. Oh, interesting. It's mostly just a bunch of gags. Mm -hmm. It's one-liners. All these famous things, you know. Mm -hmm. I can resist everything except temptation. <laughs> and it's all these characters kind of walking in and just spouting these lines yeah, and then walking off. Like Darlington is nothing but a joke machine in the play. And what Lubitsch does with that character is so much more. It's so much more profound. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the villain of the piece, ultimately. He's a dark character, yeah. Because he has had the ill grace to intimate to Lady Windermere that her husband is not faithful mm. for his own selfish reasons which is the ultimate Lubitsch sin, indiscretion. He's caused pain unnecessarily or for his own satisfaction. And he's the one who is punished with that. Again, it's the second time you see him sitting alone on a couch, you know, after Mm. the first scene where he's alone with Lady Windermere and his I love you. And that's a beautiful coda shot of the two of them just sitting wide apart in that big empty room. And then after everyone leaves his apartment at the end, there's a cut back to him just sitting by himself and kind of puts his head in his hands like this. And it's one of the most despairing moments, I think, in any Lubitsch film. He is totally alone. He's the one character who loses in all of this. It's interesting, the difference between how he's treated and in the marriage circle. How Mitzi is treated in that film, mm-hmm. she gets her happy ending. She yeah. finds her mm-hmm. equally problematic partner, and they're yeah. going to go off and be problematic together. Which is also great. Yeah. When I refer to the Oscar Wilde source material, I'm referring actually to the specific text of the specific plot machinations where, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware, at the end of the Oscar Wilde play, Lady Erlen keeps her secret, right? Yeah. It is not found out. Well, the audience knows. But Lady Windermere doesn't find out, right? No, she does not. Yeah. And that's important to Lubitsch, too. That interested me mm-hmm. because I was fully expecting that everything would come out and it would be this public scene. That's very contemporary dramatology. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their family trauma. Let's pour out all of our secrets over the dinner table. Yeah. We'll heal ourselves now. Lubitsch, no. I mean, there's some things you shouldn't talk about. There's some things that you shouldn't probe into. Mm -hmm. You can forgive people more easily, I think, if you don't. Yeah, it's not treated as this dark secret. It's not treated as this burden everyone's going to bear. It's that, Mm -hmm. no, everyone gets their happy ending. Yeah, that's human nature. We move on, you know. None of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. The idea that it's sometimes okay to move through life with your secrets. Yeah. I found that weirdly humanistic. I think it's much more compassionate than uh, Struggle Session. I don't know, some of those Marvel films where everyone is sitting around the dinner table just spouting their trauma. My trauma is more important than your trauma. And look at this trauma. No. We're all part of this incomplete, convoluted jigsaw of secrets. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that part. I literally, in my notes here, I have a list of scenes where I'm like, in all caps, with large text, hedges. Hedges, indeed. Also great hedges in Forbidden Paradise, if you have a chance. To. Have you seen that yet? This is the one time I have not actually been able to watch every film in sequence. Wonderful hedge work in that one as well. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that. We only have three Lubitsch films that we haven't seen left. Mm. Forbidden Paradise, Eternal Love, and Uncertain Feeling. Okay. One of those is very good. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder which. Yeah, it's no coincidence, probably. Mm. It's hard to bring myself to watch the film that happened between two of his masterpieces Mm -hmm. that everyone doesn't like. (laughs) Yeah. 
it's interesting because it's a remake of Kiss Me Again, which is the lost Warner silent. So you get a sense of what Kiss Me Again was like, which got great reviews when it came out. Unfortunately, we don't have it. That one is just gone. I mean, it's amazing we have as many of those films as we do. That shows you how critically popular he was at the time. Mm -hmm. He's almost completely preserved. Yeah. Luckily, I don't think any of his sound films are lost, but the sound films have their own funny things where two of them, he never finished. (laughs) Auto Primature had to finish. Mm -hmm. I find it just fascinating that so many of his most acclaimed from the silent period, you know, you have The Patriot, Kiss Me Again, you have The Flame, films that were highly acclaimed at the time and would probably be key texts in that period. Yeah. There weren't very many prints. Those early talkies, there were like 10 prints they would make. Mm -hmm. And when they were gone, they were gone. I'm shocked that we have Rosita. (laughs) It's kind of a miracle, really, that that survived. In spite of Mary Pickford's best efforts, it sort of survived. I read that she actively tried to get the prints destroyed. I didn't come across that. Yeah, that was secondhand. I didn't find a primary source for that. Yeah, she definitely just saved that one reel in her archive and junked the rest of the nitrate. That's clear. I'll never understand why she did that. I mean, I've heard multiple theories, but. And she's one of the many models for Norma Desmond, of course. She was pretty Mm -hmm. hardcore alcoholic by that point. Uh, So sad. Uh, I really liked her in Rosita. (laughs) You should say. Something about Irene Rich, who is just so transcendent in this film. And in Rosita. In Rosita. I've seen her in other movies. She's perfectly competent, but uh, Lubitsch sees something in her that I think is just inspiring, just a sense of that particularly. I know, female nobility. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just has it. I found this with Henny Porton in her works with him in Berlin. Mm. There's this incredible range that Rich has where she's playing two ostensibly similar characters in this and Rosita in that they're female nobility. And yet in Rosita, she's like the funniest person on the screen. She's so oh, yeah. knowing. She's so wry. She's yeah. always two or three steps ahead of the king. She's the only character in the film who retains her agency the whole way through. Mm. She really is driving mm. the climax of the film. Yeah, she's the secret hero. Yeah. I think she totally stole it from Mary, which may be one of the reasons why Mary wasn't so fond of the film. Yeah, I think she stole it from everyone. (laughs) And then in this film, she's this achingly flawed and tragic figure. She's a character Mm -hmm. who, in some ways, is hard to root for because... Oh, she's done some bad things. She really has. She makes some very poor decisions throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's the own up to it in one hand, she takes the Basil Fawlty route of just sticking to her bit the whole way through, just lying her way out of every situation. And yet she's so relatable. Right. And she's not wrong to do what she does. No, she saves the day. And that wonderful reversal at the end where she just comes up to her fiance and says, I'm so ashamed of the way you behaved last night. I decided not to marry you. This is not an Oscar Wilde, you know, and it is Mm -hmm. just stunningly, what a marvelous piece of psychology that is, because he's (laughs) immediately getting in the car with her and driving off, which is the ultimate Lubitsch ending. It's the couple in a car driving away to some Mm -hmm. wonderful new future together. Couple or more. Yeah. And I would love to see uh, the further adventures. Yeah. They're going to have the most interesting life. They are going to have a good time, these people, you know. She is liberated Augustus Mm -hmm. from his own society. Yep. I have two little threads I want to pull on for this little bit. One is you point out the psychology of Augustus because I had to double back and rewatch that scene because I think it's a true Lubitsch moment of what just happened? I got to work this out because it's never clearly telegraphed why he gets in the car. Is he just so impressed with her gusto (laughs) that he's like, screw it. This is a woman. He's never seen one like this before. Yeah. That much self-confidence. Oh, man, just gorgeous. It's incredible. And the other thread is when does this film take place? It's 1925. The Mm. cars are all 1925. It is. It's not a period film. It feels like that to us now because we're as far from 1925 as we are from 1890. Mm -hmm. It is updated, but it never feels like he's forcing it. 
It's interesting too, though, because you have the very modern cars, but whenever they were in interiors, the dynamics of the characters and the social mores at play mm-hmm. feel 40 years earlier. That's kind of what I'm getting at is mm-hmm. that even when they're set in a place, Lubitsch films always feel out of place. You know, half of them are set in Marshovia kingdoms, right? right. Paris Paramount as opposed to Paris, France. Favorite Paris. You have the Vienna of Marriage Circle, which never once feels like Vienna. But in this film, I felt the very unique sensation of it being out of time. Mm. It felt like he was pulling from, okay, you know, social mores. Let's pull them from Oscar Wilde's time. Right. And let's pull the technology and cars. And it feels like a story that could only have taken place 50 years earlier, but with the production design of 1925. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. It never quite feels like London (laughs) either, (laughs) which is fascinating. Stefan Dressler has this idea that Lubitsch always wanted to be a serious filmmaker in the sense that comedy wasn't really his thing. He was moving toward a more serious, more dramatic approach. And I think, you know, he did make straight dramas, of course, later. But this one is pretty much the jokes are never at the expense of the characters. It's never at the Mm -hmm. expense of the situation. The central situation is always treated with perfect seriousness and perfect dramatic integrity. It's not farcical. He's taking these people quite seriously. And Wilde just does not. Mm. But Lubitsch is able to find the moral qualities of these people. I think it really quite remarkable. And that's his genius. He finds the beauty in these moments. There's a mastery of tone in this. I feel like Rosita, for me, was a turning point in that. Yeah. In his Berlin period, you have, I think, pretty turgid dramas. I feel like I'm on the bearish side of Madame Dubarry. But then you have his comedies, which I love. I love Oyster Princess and the Doll and mm-hmm. Wildcat. But they are broad. Oh, extremely. Flailing arms. Some of the ethnic caricatures are a little uncomfortable at this point, you know? But. Yeah. And then suddenly with Rosita, I was cackling half the time. I found it mm-hmm. very delightful, but you're laughing often because it's going to, that lightness of touch, you're laughing at small things that don't undercut the story or the tone. Yeah. And I think the marriage circle, part of why I think it's good, but it's not a height of this period for me, is that it felt a little bereft of that, of delight. Uh, I felt it took itself a little more seriously than even Lady uh, Windermere's fan. Uh-huh. At least almost it was self-serious. Yeah. And then this and Student Prince, which we can get into that, I thought just, they float along. They're like on a cloud of air. Yeah. Interesting point on Marriage Circle. Yeah, of course, he remade it. Yeah. So he was not entirely satisfied with it. And when I were with you, it's significantly more... Uh, <laughs> it's bouncier, for sure. Yes. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. the most earwormy songs. I've had, oh, that Mitzi stuck in my oh, head that that all Mitzi. night. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third episode I've mentioned, oh, that Mitzi. It's like trimming the women from Monte Carlo. Yeah, it'll be your theme song here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we talked in the prologue to this recording about your thoughts on the student prince in old Heidelberg. Mm. And how it relates to the MGM style and also the production of it. Can yeah. you mention reshoots? He left Warner's a little bit of bitterness. Mm. And he'd signed up with them with total freedom, which he got. But the Warners were not particularly happy with the films he was coming up with. And so he left them after, I think Kiss Me Again is the last one. He left it in 26. Yeah. He almost made The Jazz Singer. And he left he before. supposedly acquired the property from his friend Samson Rafelson, who he worked with quite a bit later. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of a loose period for him. He's flailing around. Mm-hmm. He makes United Artists. He makes something at MGM. And he ends up at Paramount. To me, I look at Student Prince and I see it more in the continuity of those big MGM, you know, Mary Widow, the big period productions that Thalberg was very much into. And of course, it stars his, his wife. It just feels to me like one of those kind of choked up Nelson Eddie Jeanette McDonald kind of a vehicle, just you know, <laughs> the, too many artificial flowers and that kind of kitschy old Heidelberg setting mm-hmm. and all the Romberg music. I certainly don't want to dampen your enthusiasm, but. Oh, not at all. It's undampenable, so it's okay. 
<laughs> part of what I like about this series is that I can get a slightly pointless perspective on these because I've got so mm. many people contradicting yeah. thoughts on this. So I'm always curious. I'm a little bearish on One Hour With You compared to like Mary Widow. And I've interviewed two people who think it's like the height of this achievement, right? One Hour With You, really? Yeah, I know. That's what I said. Uh, <laughs> But I'm curious about, especially how this relates to, maybe to focus this a bit, on the studio style, right? Well, that's very much MGM style was the extravagance. Mm -hmm. The scenes that Stahl shot were apparently, they're sitting like a riverbank with all these flowers at night. It's yes. really pretty gross. Uh, it's just, this is not Lubitsch. Mm -hmm. This is somebody going a few steps too far. That scene in particular, I've read contradicting accounts of who reshot it. Uh -huh. In some accounts, it's Stahlberg reshot it. And then other accounts, it was Lubitsch reshot it, but also was never happy with it and never felt it quite worked. Right. So either way, he wasn't happy with it. But I wonder. Yeah. For some reason, I had it in my mind that Stahl did that scene. But as an outside reader, having read a few books about this period, they say different things. <laughs> yeah. And the Eamon one, which is the one I think was most in depth in this one point, throws his arms up <laughs> yeah. and goes, who knows? We can't mm, know now. Yeah. There's no data, unfortunately. Yeah. But this whole question of in that studio era, where director style begins and studio style ends mm -hmm. and how those play into each other is so interesting to me. Yeah. I think it varies a lot from studio to studio and also from director to director. Mm -hmm. Obviously, some people at MGM could get away with making their own movies like King Vader, Stroheim once or twice, <laughs> Todd Browning, weirdly enough, Fox and Universal were the director studios. Paramount kind of became one when Lubitsch got in there. At one point, he was out of production uh, in 35. Yeah. It's a rocky marriage. Yeah. And he was, Paramount had lots of financial trouble and he was lucky to get out of there I think, <laughs> at a certain point. But I think Fox had the most faith in directors to the point that it's amazing the number of significant American auteurs who were working there in 1928. It's like the entire pantheon from Saris was working at Fox, mm -hmm. except for Lubitsch. And then MGM is long considered the worst. It's constant retakes, interference, mm -hmm. studio memos. Don't really understand why people love Thalbert so much. He just seems to have messed up a lot of movies, as near as I can tell. There's one very interesting anecdote, actually, from this film with Thalberg, where Norma Shearer was, at this point, married to Thalberg. Mm -hmm. And she was unhappy with Lupus' directing style. He does the thing where he walks through the takes. Oh, yeah. If you didn't do exactly what he told you to do, he was not happy. And apparently she went to Thalberg and said, this Lubitsch fellow is getting on my nerves. And <laughs> Thalberg's response, uncharacteristically in this case, was maybe we could all learn a thing or two from Lubitsch. There you go. Well, that's the kind of reputation he had at the mm -hmm. time. I was a little shocked by how much deference he gave him, I guess, in that mm -hmm. case. I always wonder, because I love The Merry Widow unreasonably, probably more than it deserves. It's great. I love it. <laughs> I could watch it on loop. It's one of the most momentous movies. It just never stops. It has such momentum. It's like a train. But that's another film where you compare that to all those other musicals, right? And that was his only, I believe, MGM musical. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a different director made it. And it still feels like Lubitsch, where the tracking shots, I'm like, yes, this feels like him. You know, thematically. Visual wit. Right. It's all there, but it's almost as if there's another filter on it. Mm -hmm. It's like when a director who works with one cinematographer works with another. It's like when the yeah. Coens work with Bruno Delbanau or something. I think that's on my mind because we walked through Greenwich Village. It's almost like the director's arm is different. Yeah. I'm still learning about the mechanism for that on the day. What changes to so impact the director? Yeah. Interesting question. I'll keep finding the answers <laughs> by doing my homework. <laughs> right. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the subsequent Lubitsches that we're going to get into. We still have two and a half full seasons of this. I've never talked to you about his talkies. Are there any of his later works that particularly speak to you? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of them. It's almost an unbroken chain of masterpieces, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. It's easier to identify the three or four that don't work, really. <laughs> 
which are those? Broken Lullaby is that one or Uncertain Feeling? No, I like. I quite like Broken Lullaby. Broken Lullaby is very good. Uncertain Feeling I don't much care for. <laughs> Bluebeard's Ate the Wife I don't like at all. I'm a little bearish on that one. It seems to have gotten a bit of rediscovery recently. <laughs> it's too Billy Wilder for me. <laughs> I am part of the choir that loves his work on Ninochka. I love Nanachka. I don't know if Billy Wilder had that crucial a contribution to that. I mean, he was always ripping it off, certainly for years. Oh, yes. We recently watched A Foreign Affair and we watched One, Two, Three, and mm-hmm. one of those I love. But there's jokes lifted straight from Nanachka oh, yeah. in both of those. Mm-hmm. As far as your own experience with Lubitsch, because we haven't really gotten into this part yet, what was your entree into his work? What was the first moment you went, oh, this is a director that I want to pay attention to? Gosh, I don't know if I can answer that. I mean, he was always famous in my experience. Mm-hmm. And I first started reading about film, he was certainly mentioned in every book. This guy, Herman G. Weinberg, he was this kind of cranky New Yorker who <laughs> specialized in Stroheim and Lubitsch and wrote a bunch of books, wrote a lot for film culture. He was like the great promoter of Lubitsch, 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 Lubitsch. Almost the point, it's like a joke. You know, this guy was just too much. <laughs> But when you finally saw something like Trouble in Paradise, and it was just so fresh and modern and exciting and just funny and free and tremendously appealing, how can you not love it instantly? Mm -hmm. It took me a little longer to come around to some of the more dramatic romantic comedies. Shop Around the Corner, I probably didn't like until I saw it in college, you know? Uh, Yeah. But you have to have a certain perspective on it. I only came around to the bitch in my Mm mid-20s. So yeah, I think I had to age into accepting... But I found it interesting how you mentioned that when you were getting into him, he was kind of a canonical director. Totally. Yeah. I went to four years of homeschool and he was not brought up once. He wasn't brought up once. Not once. Well, he's not on the goddamn sight and sound pole. No, I was not a single Lubitsch. I couldn't believe it. What's wrong with these people? I think with him, though, he has a split voting problem where there's two or three that kind of are simmering at the top. There's no one. Mm. There's to be or not to be in trouble in paradise, I find are the two most common camps of what's his masterpiece. Mm. I think why not both? But I suspect he's fallen out of favor or at least fallen out of vogue in my lifetime. Yeah, I have that sense too, but I can't explain it. Mm -hmm. Is it the subtlety? I mean, we live in a time of maximum explicitness on every level, and he's just the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not going to spell things out for you. And that's his whole style. He'll give you the first couple letters and the rest is up to you. Yeah. Is he asking too much of the audience at this point? I don't know. It's too much work. I partially maybe credit the fact that he's primarily a comedy director. Comedy is my favorite thing in art. But unfortunately, I think it has maybe less of a cachet than big, serious drama with a capital A for art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always been true. There's probably so many reasons, though. I think Ford was actually the director that finally, way too late in life, in my early 20s, convinced me of the worthwhile nature of that studio era of filmmaking. Oh, yeah. Probably an obvious choice, but it took me, I think, a little while to understand what Lubitsch was doing and comparing the two and Hitchcock too, mm. as far as the two most famous studio Hollywood directors, mm-hmm. their entire brand is, I mean, Hitchcock made this explicit multiple times in interviews that he wants the whole audience to understand everything. Clarity in storytelling. Ford is clarity in emotion. And Lubitsch is, no, no, I'm going to make you work for it. Yeah. Yeah. Or even compared to other comedy directors like McCary and stuff and Sturges. Mm. I love Sturges, but he's quite different. Yeah. McCary, absolutely one of my favorites, but I don't find them that much in common. Mm-hmm. I think they both have quite different approaches. I mean, McCary is somebody who works on the level of actors. Yes. And Lubitsch works on shots. To draw the contrast that I poorly expressed, McCary and Sturges, especially Sturges, they're not making you work in the same way Lubitsch does. They're not bearing everything in three degrees of inferences where it's just mm-hmm. a door. Okay. 
where uh, in Sturge's the jokes are the text. <laughs> yeah. Which I love. Sure. But, uh, he does other things that are interesting. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for making the time for this. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, same here. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I look forward to the whole series. Thanks for coming by. If you are a film programmer and you would like to inquire about booking Rosita, The Marriage Circle, Forbidden Paradise, or Lady Windermere's fan for a screening at your local cinema, please check out our show notes, which contain a link to the MoMA's request form. Next week, Julia Sermons joins us to discuss So This is Paris. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Gloria Mercer was our dialogue editor for this episode. Recorded at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Anya Shitak-Scott was our recording engineer. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 